Today I'll be reading the first half of the 2021 dissenting opinion in Brnovich v. Democratic National Committee. Enjoy. Justice Kagan, with whom Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor join. Dissenting. If a single statute represents the best of America, it is the Voting Rights Act. It marries two great ideals, democracy and racial equality. And it dedicates our country to carrying them out. Section 2, the provision at issue here, guarantees that members of every racial group will have equal voting opportunities. Citizens of every race will have the same shot to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. They will all own our democracy together. No one more and no one less than any other. If a single statute reminds us of the worst of America, it is the Voting Rights Act. Because it was and remains so necessary. Because a century after the Civil War was fought, at a time of the Act's passage, the promise of political equality remained a distant dream for African American citizens because states and localities continually contrived new rules, mostly neutral on their face, but discriminatory in operation, to keep minority voters from the polls. Because Congress had reason to suppose that states would try similar maneuvers in the future, pouring old poison into new bottles, to suppress minority votes. The Voting Rights Act is ambitious in both goal and scope. When President Lyndon Johnson sent the bill to Congress 10 days after John Lewis led marchers across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, he explained that it was carefully drafted to meet its objective, the end of discrimination in voting in America. He was right about how the act's drafting reflected its aim. The end of discrimination in voting is a far-reaching goal, and the Voting Rights Act's text is just as far-reaching. A later amendment adding the provision at issue here became necessary when this court construed the statute too narrowly. And in the last decade, this court assailed the act again, undoing its vital Section 5. But Section 2 of the Act remains, as written, as expansive as ever, demanding that every citizen of this country possesses a right at once grand and obvious, the right to an equal opportunity to vote. Today, the court undermines Section 2 and the right it provides. The majority fears that the statute Congress wrote is too radical, that it will invalidate too many state voting laws. 
So the majority writes its own set of rules, limiting Section 2 from multiple directions. Wherever it can, the majority gives a cramped reading to broad language, and then it uses that reading to uphold two election laws from Arizona that discriminate against minority voters. I could say, and will in the following pages, that this is not how the court is supposed to interpret and apply statutes. But that ordinary critique woefully undersells the problem. What is tragic here is that the court has yet again rewritten in order to weaken a statute that stands as a monument to America's greatness and protects against its basest impulses. What is tragic is that the court has damaged a statute designed to bring about the end of discrimination in voting. I respectfully dissent. Part 1 The Voting Rights Act of 1965 is an extraordinary law. Rarely has a statute required so much sacrifice to ensure its passage. Never has a statute done more to advance the nation's highest ideals. And few laws are more vital in the current moment. Yet, in the last decade, this court has treated no statute worse. To take the measure of today's harm, a look to the act's past must come first. The idea is not to recount, as the majority hurriedly does, some bygone era of voting discrimination. It is instead to describe the electoral practices that the act targets and to show the high stakes of the present controversy. Section A. Democratic ideals in America got off to a glorious start. Democratic practice, not so much. The Declaration of Independence made an awe-inspiring promise to institute a government deriving its just powers from the consent of the governed. But for most of the nation's first century, that pledge ran to white men only. The earliest state election laws excluded from the franchise African Americans, Native Americans, women, and those without property. In 1855, on the precipice of the Civil War, only five states permitted African Americans to vote. And at the federal level, our court's most deplorable holding made sure that no black people could enter the voting booth. But the American ideal of political equality could not forever tolerate the limitation of the right to vote to whites only. And a civil war dedicated to ensuring government of the people, by the people, for the people, brought constitutional change. In 1870, after a hard-fought battle over ratification, the 15th Amendment carried the nation closer to its founding aspirations. 
the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Those words promised to enfranchise millions of black citizens who only a decade earlier had been slaves. Frederick Douglass held that the amendment means that we are placed upon an equal footing with all other men, that with the vote, liberty is to be the right of all. President Grant had seen much blood spilled in the Civil War. Now he spoke of the fruits of that sacrifice. In a self-described unusual message to Congress, he heralded the 15th Amendment as a measure of grander importance than any other one act of the kind from the foundation of our free government, as the most important event that has occurred since the nation came into life. Momentous as the 15th Amendment was, celebration of its achievements soon proved premature. The amendment's guarantees quickly became dead letters in much of the country. African Americans daring to go to the polls often met with coordinated intimidation and violence. And almost immediately, legislators discovered that bloodless actions could also suffice to limit the electorate to white citizens. Many states, especially in the South, suppressed the black vote through a dizzying array of methods, literacy tests, poll taxes, registration requirements, and property qualifications. Most of those laws, though facially neutral, gave enough discretion to election officials to prevent significant effects on poor or uneducated whites. The idea, as one Virginia representative put it, was to disenfranchise every Negro that he could disenfranchise, and as few white people as possible. Decade after decade after decade, election rules blocked African Americans, and in some states, Hispanics and Native Americans too, from making use of the ballot. By 1965, only 27% of black Georgians, 19% of black Alabamians, And 7%, yes, 7% of black Mississippians were registered to vote. The civil rights movement and the events of a single bloody Sunday created pressure for change. Selma was the heart of an Alabama county whose 15,000 black citizens included in 1961 only 156 on the voting rolls. In the first days of 1965, the city became the epicenter of demonstrations meant to force Southern election officials to register African-American voters. As weeks went by without results, organizers announced a march from Selma to Birmingham. On March 7th, some 600 protesters, led by future Congressman John Lewis, sought to cross 
the Edmund Pettus Bridge. State troopers in riot gear responded brutally. Turning their nightsticks horizontally, they rushed into the crowd, knocking people over like bowling pins. Then came men on horseback, swinging their clubs and ropes like cowboys driving cattle to market. The protesters were beaten, knocked unconscious, and bloodied. Lewis's skull was fractured. I thought I was going to die on this bridge, he later recalled. A galvanized country responded. Ten days after the Selma march, President Johnson wrote to Congress proposing legislation to help rid the nation of racial discrimination in every aspect of the electoral process and thereby ensure the right of all to vote. And in August 1965, after the bill's supporters overcame a Senate filibuster, Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law. Echoing Grant's description of the 15th Amendment, Johnson called the statute one of the most monumental laws in the entire history of American freedom. After a century's failure to fulfill the promise of the 15th Amendment, passage of the VRA finally led to signal improvement. In the five years after the statute's passage, almost as many African Americans registered to vote in six southern states as in the entire century before 1965. The crudest attempts to block voting access, like literacy tests and poll taxes, disappeared. Legislatures often replaced those vote denial schemes with new measures, mostly to do with districting, designed to dilute the impact of minority votes. But the Voting Rights Act, operating for decades at full strength, stopped many of those measures too. As a famed dissent assessed the situation about a half-century after the statute's enactment. The Voting Rights Act had become one of the most consequential, efficacious, and amply justified exercises of federal legislative power in our nation's history. Section B. Yet efforts to suppress the minority vote continue. No one would know this from reading the majority opinion. It hails the good news that legislative efforts had mostly shifted by the 1980s from vote denial to vote dilution. And then it moves on to other matters, as though the Voting Rights Act no longer has a problem to address, as though... Once literacy tests and poll taxes disappeared, so too did efforts to curb minority voting. But as this court recognized about a decade ago, racial discrimination and racially polarized voting are not ancient history. Indeed, the problem of voting discrimination has become worse since that time, in part because of what this court did in Shelby County. Weaken the Voting Rights Act 
and predictable consequences follow. Yet a further generation of voter suppression laws. Much of the Voting Rights Act's success lay in its capacity to meet ever new forms of discrimination. Experience showed that whenever one form of voting discrimination was identified and prohibited, others sprang up in its place. Combating those efforts was like battling the Hydra, or to use a less cultured reference, like playing a game of whack-a-mole. So Congress, in Section 5 of the Act, gave the Department of Justice authority to review all new rules devised by jurisdictions with a history of voter suppression and to block any that would have discriminatory effects. In that way, the act would prevent the use of new, more nuanced methods to restrict the voting opportunities of non-white citizens. And for decades, Section 5 operated as intended. Between 1965 and 2006, the department stopped almost 1,200 voting laws in covered areas from taking effect. Some of those laws used districting to dilute minority voting strength, making sure that the votes of minority citizens would carry less weight than the votes of whites in electing candidates. Other laws, even if facially neutral, disproportionately curbed the ability of non-white citizens to cast a ballot at all. So, for example, a jurisdiction might require forms of identification that those voters were less likely to have, or it might limit voting places and times convenient for those voters, or it might purge its voter rolls through mechanisms especially likely to ensnare them. In reviewing mountains of such evidence in 2006, Congress saw a continuing need for Section 5. Although discrimination today is more subtle than the visible methods used in 1965, Congress found it still produces the same effects, namely a diminishing of the minority community's ability to fully participate in the electoral process. Congress thus reauthorized the preclearance scheme for 25 years. But this court took a different view. Finding that our country has changed, the court saw only limited instances of voting discrimination, and so no further need for preclearance. Displacing Congress's contrary judgment, the court struck down the coverage formula essential to the statute's operation. The legal analysis offered was perplexing. The court based its decision on a principle of equal state sovereignty that a prior decision of ours had rejected and that has not made an appearance since. Worse yet was the court's blithe confidence in assessing what was needed and what was not. Things have changed dramatically, the court reiterated. 
the statue that was once a necessity had become an imposition. But how did the majority know there was nothing more for Section 5 to do? That the undoubted changes in the country went so far as to make the provision unnecessary. It didn't, as Justice Ginsburg explained in dissent. The majority's faith that discrimination was almost gone, derived at least in part from the success of Section 5, from its record of blocking discriminatory voting schemes. Discarding Section 5 because those schemes had diminished was like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. The rashness of the act soon became evident. Once Section 5's strictures came off, states and localities put in place new restrictive voting laws with foreseeably adverse effects on minority voters. On the very day Shelby County issued, Texas announced that it would implement a strict voter identification requirement that had failed to clear Section 5. Other states, Alabama, Virginia, Mississippi, fell like dominoes, adopting measures similarly vulnerable to preclearance review. The North Carolina legislature, starting work the day after Shelby County, enacted a sweeping election bill eliminating same-day registration, forbidding out-of-precinct voting, and reducing early voting, including souls to the polls Sundays. States and localities redistricted, drawing new boundary lines or replacing neighborhood-based seats with at-large seats, in ways guaranteed to reduce minority representation. And jurisdictions closed polling places in mostly minority areas, enhancing an already pronounced problem. And that was just the first wave of post-Shelby County laws. In recent months, state after state has taken up or enacted legislation erecting new barriers to voting. Those laws shorten the time polls are open, both on Election Day and before. They impose new prerequisites to voting by mail and shorten the windows to apply for and return mail ballots. They make it harder to register to vote and easier to purge voters from the rolls. Two laws even ban handing out food or water to voters standing in line. Some of those restrictions may be lawful under the Voting Rights Act, but chances are that some have the kind of impact the act was designed to prevent, that they make the political process less open to minority voters than to others. So the court decides this Voting Rights Act case at a perilous moment for the nation's commitment to equal citizenship. It decides this case in an era of voting rights retrenchment, when too many states and localities are restricting access to voting in ways that will predictably deprive members of minority groups of equal access to the ballot box.
If any racial discrimination in voting is too much, as the Shelby County Court recited, then the act still has much to do, or more precisely, the fraction of the act remaining, the act as diminished by the court's hand. Congress never meant for Section 2 to bear all of the weight of the act's commitments. That provision looks to courts, not to the executive branch, to restrain discriminatory voting practices. And litigation is an after-the-fact remedy, incapable of providing relief until an election, usually more than one election, has come and gone. So Section 2 was supposed to be a backup for all its sweep and power. But after Shelby County, the vitality of Section 2, a permanent nationwide ban on racial discrimination in voting, matters more than ever. For after Shelby County, Section 2 is what voters have left. Part 2 Section 2, as drafted, is well-equipped to meet the challenge. Congress meant to eliminate all discriminatory election systems or practices which operate designedly or otherwise to minimize or cancel out the voting strength and political effectiveness of minority groups. And that broad intent is manifest in the provision's broad text. As always, this court's task is to read that language as Congress wrote it, to give this section all the scope and potency Congress drafted it to have. So I start by showing how Section 2's text requires courts to eradicate voting practices that make it harder for members of some races than of others to cast a vote unless such a practice is necessary to support a strong state interest. I then show how far from that text the majority strays. Its analysis permits exactly the kind of vote suppression that Section 2, by its terms, rules out of bounds. Section A. Section 2, as relevant here, has two interlocking parts. Subsection A states the law's basic prohibition. No voting qualification or prerequisite to voting or standard practice or procedure shall be imposed or applied by any state or political subdivision in a manner which results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color. Subsection B then tells courts how to apply that bar, or otherwise said, when to find that an infringement of the voting right has occurred. Quote, a violation of subsection A is established if, based on the totality of circumstances, it is shown that the political processes leading to nomination or election in the state or political subdivision are not equally open to participation by members of a given race 
in that those members have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. Those provisions have a great many words, and I address them further below, but their essential import is plain. Courts are to strike down voting rules that contribute to a racial disparity in the opportunity to vote, taking all the relevant circumstances into account. The first thing to note about Section 2 is how far its prohibitory language sweeps. The provision bars any voting qualification, any prerequisite to voting, or any standard practice or procedure that results in a denial or abridgment of the right to vote on account of race. The overlapping list of covered state actions makes clear that Section 2 extends to every kind of voting or election rule. Congress carved out nothing pertaining to voter qualifications or the manner in which elections are conducted. So, for example, the provision covers all manner of registration requirements, the practices surrounding registration, the locations of polling places, the times polls are open, the use of paper ballots as opposed to voting machines, and other similar aspects of the voting process that might be manipulated to deny any citizen the right to cast a ballot and have it properly counted. All those rules and more come within the statute, so long as they result in a race-based denial or abridgment of the voting right. And the denial or abridgment phrase speaks broadly too. Abridgment necessarily means something more subtle and less drastic than the complete denial of the right to cast a ballot, denial being separately forbidden. It means to curtail rather than take away the voting right. The results in language Connecting the covered voting rules to the prohibited voting abridgment tells courts that they are to focus on the law's effects. Rather than hinge liability on state officials' motives, Congress made it ride on their actions' consequences. That decision was as considered as considered comes. This court, as the majority notes, had construed the original Section 2 to apply to facially neutral voting practices only if they were motivated by a discriminatory purpose. Congress enacted the current Section 2 to reverse that outcome to make clear that results alone could lead to liability. An intent test, the Senate report explained, asks the wrong question. If minority citizens are denied a fair opportunity to participate, then the system should be changed, regardless of what motives were in an official's mind. Congress also saw an intent test as imposing an inordinately difficult burden for plaintiffs. Even if state actors had purposefully discriminated, 
they would likely be able to offer a non-racial rationalization supported by a false trial of official resolutions and other legislative history eschewing any racial motive. So only a results-focused statute could prevent states from finding ways to abridge minority citizens' voting rights. But when to conclude, looking to effects, not purposes, that a denial or abridgment has occurred? Again, answering that question is subsection B's function. It teaches that a violation is established when, based on the totality of circumstances, a state's electoral system is not equally open to members of a racial group. And then the subsection tells us what that means. A system is not equally open if members of one race have less opportunity than others to cast votes, to participate in politics, or to elect representatives. The key demand, then, is for equal political opportunity across races. That equal opportunity is absent when a law or practice makes it harder for members of one racial group than for others to cast ballots. When Congress amended Section 2, the word opportunity meant what it also does today, a favorable or advantageous combination of circumstances for some action. In using that word, Congress made clear that the Voting Rights Act does not demand equal outcomes if members of different races have the same opportunity to vote, but go to the ballot box at different rates. Then so be it. That is their preference, and Section 2 has nothing to say. But, If a law produces different voting opportunities across races, if it establishes rules and conditions of political participation that are less favorable or advantageous for one racial group than for others, then Section 2 kicks in. It applies, in short, whenever the law makes it harder for citizens of one race than of others to cast a vote. And that is so even if, as is usually true, the law does not single out any race but instead is facially neutral. Suppose, as Justice Scalia once did, that a county has a law limiting voter registration to only three hours one day a week. And suppose that policy makes it more difficult for blacks to register than whites, say because the jobs African Americans disproportionately hold make it harder to take time off in that window. Those citizens, Justice Scalia concluded, would then have less opportunity to participate in the political process than whites, and Section 2 would therefore be violated. In enacting Section 2, Congress documented many similar, if less extreme, facially neutral rules. Registration requirements, voting and registration hours, voter purging policies, and so forth, that create disparities in voting opportunities.
Those laws, Congress thought, would violate Section 2, though they were not facially discriminatory because they gave voters of different races unequal access to the political process. Congress also made plain in calling for a totality of circumstances inquiry that equal voting opportunity is a function of both law and background conditions. In other words, that a voting rule's validity depends on how the rule operates in conjunction with facts on the ground. Totality review, this court has explained, stems from Congress's recognition of the demonstrated ingenuity of state and local governments in hobbling minority voting power. Sometimes, of course, state actions overtly target a single race. For example, Congress was acutely aware, in amending Section 2, of the elimination of polling places in African-American neighborhoods. But sometimes, government officials enact facially neutral laws that leverage and become discriminatory by dint of pre-existing social and economic conditions. The classical historical cases are literacy tests and poll taxes. A more modern example is the one Justice Scalia gave of limited registration hours. Congress knew how those laws worked. It saw that inferior education, poor employment opportunities, and low incomes, all conditions often correlated with race, could turn an even ordinary-seeming election rule into an effective barrier to minority voting in certain circumstances. So Congress demanded, as this court has recognized, an intensely local appraisal of a rule's impact, a searching, practical evaluation of the past and present reality. The essence of a Section 2 claim, we have said, is that an election law interacts with social and historical conditions in a particular place to cause race-based inequality in voting opportunity. That interaction is what the totality inquiry is mostly designed to discover. At the same time, the totality inquiry enables courts to take into account strong state interests supporting an election rule. And all things considered inquiry, we have explained, is by its nature flexible. On the one hand, it allows no safe harbors for election rules resulting in discrimination. On the other hand, it precludes automatic condemnation of those rules. Among the balance of considerations a court is to weigh is a state's need for the challenged policy. But in making that assessment of state interests, a court must keep in mind just as Congress did, the ease of offering a non-racial rationalization for even blatantly discriminatory laws. State interests do not get accepted on faith, and even a genuine and strong interest will not suffice if a plaintiff can prove that it can be accomplished in a less discriminatory way. As we have put the point before, before, 
when a less racially biased law would not significantly impair the state's interest, the discriminatory election rule must fall. So the text of Section 2, as applied in our precedents, tells us the following, every part of which speaks to the ambition of Congress's action. Section 2 applies to any voting rule of any kind. The provision prohibits not just the denial, but also the abridgment of a citizen's voting rights on account of race. The inquiry is focused on effects. It asks not about why state officials enacted a rule, but about whether that rule results in racial discrimination. The discrimination that is of concern is inequality of voting opportunity. That kind of discrimination can arise from facially neutral, not just targeted, rules. There is a Section 2 problem when an election rule operating against the backdrop of historical, social, and economic conditions makes it harder for minority citizens than for others to cast ballots. And strong state interests may save an otherwise discriminatory rule, but only if that rule is needed to achieve them. That is, only if a less discriminatory rule will not attain the state's goal. That is a lot of law to apply in a Section 2 case. Real law, the kind created by Congress. None of this law threatens to take down, as the majority charges, the mass of state and local election rules. Here is the flip side of what I have said above. Now from the plaintiff's perspective. Section 2 demands proof of a statistically significant racial disparity in electoral opportunities, not outcomes, resulting from a law not needed to achieve a government's legitimate goals. That showing is hardly insubstantial, and as a result, Section 2 vote denial suits do not often succeed. But Section 2 was indeed meant to do something important, crucial to the operation of our democracy. The provision tells courts, however radical the majority might find the idea, to eliminate facially neutral as well as targeted electoral rules that unnecessarily create inequalities of access to the political process. That is the very project of the statute, as conceived and as written, and now as damaged by this court. Section B. The majority's opinion mostly inhabits a law-free zone. It congratulates itself in advance for giving Section 2's text careful consideration, and then it leaves that language almost wholly behind. 
So, too, the majority barely mentions this court's precedents, construing Section 2's text. On both those counts, you can see why. As just described, Section 2's language is broad. To read it fairly, then, is to read it broadly. And to read it broadly is to do much that the majority is determined to avoid. So the majority ignores the sweep of Section 2's prohibitory language. It fails to note Section 2's application to every conceivable kind of voting rule. It neglects to address the provision's concern with how those rules may abridge, not just deny, minority citizens' voting rights. It declines to consider Congress's use of an effects test rather than a purpose test to assess the rule's legality. The majority says as little as possible about what it means for voting to be equally open or for voters to have an equal opportunity to cast a ballot. It only grudgingly accepts and then apparently forgets that the provision applies to facially neutral laws with discriminatory consequences. And it hints that as long as a voting system is sufficiently open, it need not be equally so. In sum, the majority skates over the strong words Congress drafted to accomplish its equally strong purpose, ensuring that minority citizens can access the electoral system as easily as whites. The majority instead founds its decision on a list of mostly made-up factors at odds with Section 2 itself. To excuse this unusual free-form exercise, the majority notes that Section 2 authorizes courts to conduct a totality-of-circumstances analysis. But as described above, Congress mainly added that language so that Section 2 could protect against the demonstrated ingenuity of state and local governments in hobbling minority voting power. The totality inquiry requires courts to explore how ordinary-seeming laws can interact with local conditions, economic, social, and historical, to produce race-based voting inequalities. That inquiry hardly gives a court the license to devise whatever limitations on Section 2's reach it would have liked Congress to enact. But that is the license the majority takes. The important circumstances it invents all cut in one direction, toward limiting liability for race-based voting inequalities. Think of the majority's list as a set of extra-textual restrictions on Section 2, methods of counteracting the law Congress actually drafted to achieve the purposes Congress thought important. The list not a test, the majority hastens to assure us with delusions of modesty, stacks the deck against minority citizens' voting rights. 
Never mind that Congress drafted a statute to protect those rights, to prohibit any number of schemes the majority's non-test makes it possible to save. Start with the majority's first idea, a mere inconvenience exception to Section 2. Voting, the majority says, imposes a set of usual burdens, some time, some travel, some rule compliance. And all of that is beneath the notice of Section 2, even if those burdens fall highly unequally on members of different races. But that categorical exclusion for seemingly small or unusual or unserious burdens is nowhere in the provision's text. To the contrary, and as this court has recognized before, Section 2 allows no safe harbors for election rules resulting in disparate voting opportunities. The section applies to any discriminatory voting qualification, prerequisite to voting, or standard practice or procedure, even the kind creating only what the majority thinks of as an ordinary burden. And the section cares about any race-based abridgments of voting, not just measures that come near to preventing that activity. Congress, recall, was intent on eradicating the subtle as well as the obvious ways of suppressing minority voting. One of those more subtle ways is to impose inconveniences, especially a collection of them, differentially affecting members of one race. The certain result, because every inconvenience makes voting both somewhat more difficult and somewhat less likely, will be to deter minority votes. In countenancing such an election system, the majority departs from Congress's vision, set down in text, of ensuring equal voting opportunity. It chooses equality light. Equality light. 